The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I want to talk this morning with you about a philosophy of emptiness and a practice of attention. Um, for those of you, and I do see some familiar faces who were at the workshop yesterday, as I said, I hope going over some of the same ground, not exactly the same, um, will be helpful and reinforce it rather than tedious, but we shall see. If we start with emptiness, just the bare word, what does it mean to us? And I'm sure all of us would have answers, many of which will be different. I think particularly with the English, the word in English, our first thought is kind of a lack, an existential angst. What is interesting, I think, is how we respond to that perceived lack. And that, I think, is where a philosophy of emptiness comes in. A philosophy of emptiness is very far, I think, from lack. We find philosophies of emptiness really start with Taoism and Buddhism, with a non-dual approach to life which starts from the intertwining of being and non-being, of emptiness and fullness in a way that I think our Western philosophies lack. I think in the West we have always had philosophies of presence in which absence, absence, which emptiness just denotes lack. Um, Someone yesterday gave me a wonderful question, which was, was there a link between the kind of existential lack of, of, of a needing something and the emptiness, a philosophy of emptiness that I was talking about? And she came up with her own wonderful answer, which was that the distinction lay in the existence or the non-existence of connection. Because if emptiness is a part of fullness, there is connection, there is interconnection with everything there is, in which case emptiness becomes suchness. In the lack of that connection, there is isolation. So it was a wonderful answer, which I'm profoundly grateful to. You know, I think emptiness, just the word, is probably problematic because it does denote lack to us. Um, the word in Sanskrit, shunyata, which is at the basis of a philosophy of emptiness, um, denotes um, hollowness as of a seed, so it also carries ideas of potential within it, which I think our word lacks. Sometimes I think openness is a nicer word than emptiness, but emptiness is the one that's always been translated, so... There we are. Um, I have just come from many years floating around in emptiness, I guess, having just finished a book called um, the philosoph- a, philosoph- a Philosophy, not The Philosophy, of Emptiness. Um, and it's very strange, but the origin of the book began in 
in some ways one of the emptiest places, not very far from the Grand Canyon, um, in a very deserted cafe on a Sunday in a deserted sort of mall plaza in the sort of high desert country of the Navajo Nation, I picked up a Wi-Fi cafe, which was why I was there. Um, I picked up an email from a friend in England who had passed on to me a request from a publisher saying, did he know of anyone who might be interested in writing a book on a philosophy of emptiness? It was a very strange email to get in those circumstances. But having been accused years earlier by the supervisor of of my doctoral thesis of an obsession with emptiness, it, it felt like a sort of call I couldn't refuse. And... Again, two nights before um, the drive out into this amazing space somewhere near Lake Powell, um, I'd been in Las Vegas, which it possibly seems to me um, sort of man's greatest monument to the avoidance and fear of emptiness. (laughs) A sort of oasis of noise and light and neon and crowds and streaming waters in what would and perhaps otherwise should be a geographic emptiness. And the night sky that in the desert revealed against the darkness more and brighter stars than I think I've ever seen in my life. Um, And a milky way that really illuminated its name. In Vegas had been absolutely invisible behind the neon and the headlamps. Las Vegas or the desert. I think it's really too neat a kind of metaphor for the different responses to emptiness, but I think you know where I'm going. You know, on the one hand, emptiness is a lack to be filled quickly with distraction. On the other, um, feeling this kind of horror and the vacuity of mindless agitation to see the potential of space for clearing the mind and by paying careful attention discovering the complexity and the beauty that exists in desert clarity. I found two amazing um, quotes from contemporary writers, which I want to read to you, because they express these sort of paradoxical aspects of the desert. This is the first. Increasingly, however, it is the sun-scorched emptiness of the desert a place that is once pre- and post-historic that exerts a hold on us. Don DeLillo described the desert as a container for emptiness. And in a world stripped of transcendental values, we are drawn increasingly into that vacuum. And from the other perspective, but desert space is always a listener. Its only voice a quiet So unbroken, it hushes you, thereby making you fit to enter in. How delicious to listen and be no one at all. A no one brimful, an emptiness who has become what there is. Um, Perhaps tellingly, the first quotation is that of a metropolitan Londoner. The second, that of one who has spent days in solitary exploration of uninhabited regions. I think those who live in the desert or the wilderness and pay close attention to the surroundings of which they consider themselves a part 
those who live close to the land, see emptiness differently from us in the urbanized West. Um, The Native American Luther Standing Bear once said, there is no such thing as emptiness in the world. And similarly, a testimonial from the worldview of the Koyukon of northern Alaska declares, there is no emptiness in the forest, no inward solitude. Such philosophy arises directly, I believe, from attentive experience. And it's probably helpful if it's of of natural land. Um, Later on, much of the writing of the book was carried out a little bit north of here in California in winter in a hillside garden that often on winter mornings looked out into nothing but mist. Um, It often seems suitably like um, living within a Chinese scroll ink painting. And I think this is perhaps a better metaphor um, for, as I said, the first Las Vegas or the desert is too neat. And as I discovered through the writing, the process of emptiness and fullness is more complicated, more a misty intertwining than an either or. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. For while the word emptiness, as I've said, would seem to point to lack, a philosophy of emptiness points to something different, to another emptiness that is empty of essence, definition, limit, necessity, but not empty of existence. It is an emptiness that is both potential and reality, and leads us, I think, back to our experience. Indefinable, untotalizable, unfolding. For I think it's helpful to think of emptiness not as a ness, not as a verb, not as a noun, and it has nothing to do with nothing, but rather to think of it as a verb, as an emptying out. It is an experience, I believe, of the infinite movement of things, of world-worlding, undefinable, beyond expectation, beyond position, definition, privilege, but not nothing. I think it is a different and alternative way of seeing and understanding And I think it has a contemporary importance and relevance, which I shall come back to. But I want to return a little to Buddhist teachings and Buddhist understandings of emptiness. And um, I'm going to go quite quickly here. But early Buddhism speaks mostly of the emptiness of the self. We have the three marks of existence, impermanence, suffering, views of self. And I think we could almost say that the suffering expressed in the first truth of the Buddha, which we are asked to know thoroughly, is the ordinary existential feeling of lack. So much of our suffering comes from feelings of lack. It is to be known. Its origin, as expressed in the second truth, is our ignorant misperception of the world around a core of self and a desire for permanence, which is to be rejected. 
And then the possibility of liberation and the path to it are the potential and the path of a philosophy of emptiness which is to be embraced. It is the philosophy, the wisdom, the mindfulness, the attention that both lets us see the emptiness of things and lets us understand them and live better in that knowledge. So early Buddhism gives us lots of models of the self, all of which are models of interdependence. Central, I think, is the model of dependent arising, which in its very earliest and easiest and simplest form is, you know, when this exists, that comes to be. When this goes out of being, that goes out of being. But it's a it's a model of, the in, of interdependence. And all the models we get of self, all those endless models of threes and fives and six and nines and twelves that sort of can drive you mad, um, are all to desolidify the self, to help us to see it as a process of selfing, a process of becoming rather than a solid self. I think, you know, suffering both from the, from the dharmic perspective and from a psychotherapeutic come, one comes when we identify with a very solid self, sense of self which doesn't allow us to change, which rubs up against the impermanence of the world. There's a lovely story I got out of some psychotherapy book which said that, you know, or it may have been a dharma book, but someone... You know, a practitioner was saying, um, you know, he had problems with, with, with not-self, the idea of not-self. And his little child said, but Daddy, you know, if I had a, a solid self, how would I ever grow up? <laughs> Out of the mouths of children, etc. Um, later on in the Mahayana, this emphasis on not-self of early Buddhism expands into the not-self of all phenomena. Again, it is not non-existence. The other side of the coin, if, if you think of emptiness as a coin, with one side is emptiness, is shunyata, the other side is dependent origination, the interdependence of all things. Things are empty. They are empty of essence, of permanence, of singularity because they are dependent upon causes and conditions, because of the interdependence of parts and wholes, because of designation put onto them by language, by custom. So, Some quite deep philosophical texts of the Mahayana talk about emptiness in terms of, or essence, in terms of its unfindability. And if early Buddhism and the Buddha's first sermon offered us a path, the middle way between complete renunciation and luxury, the middle way of the Mahayana makes a path between 
eternalism, things exist eternally and absolutely, and nihilism, nothing exists. A non-dual middle path. Um, there is another, the, there are different interpretations of emptiness. I'm not going to go into that there, but there is the very madhyamika, the emptiness of emptiness, a self-emptying concept, where we get, you know, Nagarjuna's um, admonition how the emptiness is a snake and is dangerous and to, to mishandle a snake will bite you as mishandling the concept of emptiness. And indeed, emptiness, like everything else in that other central Buddhist teaching, may be grasped. And if we grasp it, that is an error. Um, and, but then there is another understanding of emptiness which becomes very like the understanding of original mind that is more positive. And I think came out of teachings of people who thought, had deep meditative experience and felt that the Madhyamika exposition of emptiness was possibly a little bit too intellectual or a bit too empty for some people and they wanted to give people a more positive teaching. So there are some teachings which you will find in various schools of other schools of Tibetan Buddhism and in Far Eastern Buddhism that give a slightly more positive spin on it. Um, So we, I think that's probably all I'm going to say of the Buddhist ex philosophy of emptiness, which is by far the most um, central. If you Google a philosophy of emptiness, you will actually come across millions of answers. I plowed my way through about the first 15 pages, and um, I would say 99% of them refer to Buddhism. The other locus for a philosophy of emptiness is, of course, Taoism, um, which then went on and deeply influenced Far Eastern forms of Buddhism. And there, I would say, it's, in a way, it's not quite as... It's more poetic, I think, more foundational, and... Um, not, it, it's not been worked out as well as all the later commentators, the Tibetans and the Indians and the Tibetans did with the Buddhist um, philosophy of emptiness. You will find traces, and this was really exciting for me that I didn't know they exist, but there were um, traces of emptiness in the Greeks, in Hellenistic Greeks, from Heraclitus, in pre-Socrates, Socratics in Stoics, Epicurean, and particularly Peronian skeptic philosophy. You find all sorts of exciting things about emptiness that um, really you would have thought were Buddhist. But then in the West, with the rise of Christianity and the, philosoph the Greek philosophies that were taken on board wholesale in the West were those that kind of sat reasonably with Christianity. And we have philosophies of presence, philosophies of the law of the excluded middle, or rather a logic of the law of the excluded middle. And you um, lose 
any, I would say, resonance of emptiness in Western writing, except for a few traces in Christian mystics. There is a difference, and there is usually a god or a godhead at the back supporting their, their understanding of emptiness, but there are some wonderful poetic writings in some of the mystics that you know, sing of emptiness. Um, and then I think you get some of the romantic poets um, also in talking of the sublime. But really, historically, the West ta- has taken the path of philosophies of presence um, to which the alternative is only absence. So in the beginning of the modern period and into the postmodern, when the certainties... Sorry. Not much better on this ear. I think it's glasses and hair. Um, When the certainties began to break down, there's not a lot of place for philosophies of presence to go, but absence and emptiness as lack. Um, And we see so many of the certainties of earlier times being being challenged. You know, Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God. Evolution attacked creationism. We have indeterminacy. We have the um, unconscious. So many, all, many, many, many certainties over the years were chipped away at. You know, in, in philosophy, we see the breakdown of systems. You see a turn towards existence rather than essence. Phenomenology tries to return philosophy to the lived world. We see deconstruction. We see dependence, how much of what we believe is dependent on language and on custom. Science has particularly chipped away at the certainties. Indeterminacy, uncertainty, quanta, black holes, string theory, all present us with a world that is absolutely very far from that of our daily experience. Even though we know of this, we still live almost according to the old certainties. And it's difficult. Uh, Someone once gave me a lovely example of a table, you know, a a, a quantum physicist writing on a table. She knows the table is full of holes and space and particles doing all sorts of strange things which cannot be described, but you still use it to write upon. But it chips away. And, And the field of the arts, the artists are those, I think, who articulate change before the rest of us. They've always been those who help us to see the world anew. And in all the arts, you see the breakdown of forms, you know, cubism, abstract art, conceptualism. Art came out of the frame. Theater came out of the, behind the proscenium arch. The audience, more and more these days, is, is invited to be included in the experience. Um, you know, I just want to give you two quintessential examples, and they both link with John Cage. One is his amazing piece of non-music, you know, 4 minutes 33, at which he had an audience sit in silence as someone came and opened the piano and sat there. Because, of course, silence is not silence. Silence is full 
of sound. And he was inspired and of, um, by the white paintings of Robert Rauschenberg, of which he described them as airports for shadows and particle. Every time you pass them, the light is different. You see it differently. The white is different. You pick up something you hadn't seen before. So I think the Western response to the lack of presence is absence. And ideas of emptiness, I think, can offer us an alternate path and be really helpful. Um, there is a lovely sinologist, French philosopher, called, uh, writer called François Julien, who talks of Western philosophy as having this either-or, this logic of either-or, of absence or presence, in contradistinction to which he talks about the Chinese logic of the breath, the in-breath, and the out-breath. One leads on to, implies the other. It's not an either-or. And I think this helps us to give us a path, a way to walk forwards within uncertainty. So the philosophy of emptiness needs, I think, a practice of attention. And that practice, in the beginning, shows us how selves how ourselves and all phenomena actually exist, compounded, constructed, processual, and then how best to live with such knowledge. Um, we know now of experience-dependent neuroplasticity of our brains, and what we constantly, consistently pay attention to becomes instantiated in our brains. If then we are creatures of habit, I think it behoves us to choose our habits carefully, and I think practices of attention are central to revision. Um, to pay attention to what is not obvious. To space rather than form. To silence around sound. To process rather than substance. And attention to the process of attention itself, not just to its content to being, not doing, which is, of course, what you've all been doing here this morning. And I think the need for this is, is shown you know, by the incredible popularity of mindfulness in so many different spheres of life now. Um, so I just want to say that I discovered in a dialogue between two philosophers, an American Richard Rorty and an Italian Gianni Vattimo, on the future of religion. I came across this. There are no facts, only interpretations. The end of the meta-narratives is not the unveiling of a true state of affairs in which the meta-narratives no longer are. It is, on the contrary, a process of which, given that we are fully immersed in it and cannot regard it from outside, we are called upon to grasp a guiding thread that we can use in order to project the further development that is to remain inside it as interpreters rather than objective recorders of facts. Um, I think emptiness may be a valuable guiding thread um, in the words of Stephen Batchelor, who may have spoken to you here, I think, he, he speaks of the emptiness of necessity and the embrace of contingency.
understanding the ex- and exposing the emptiness of foundations and of substance, solid substance, yet allied to the practice of attention, illuminating interdependent reality. I think this may encourage presentation rather than representation and guiding us back to enhanced experience, embodied, embedded, and connected. So thank you very much. And if anyone has any questions and would you know, like to discuss that, I think there's sort of a tiny bit of time remaining. So... Thank you for the talk. I really enjoyed that and gave me lots to think about. Um, near the end, you had a list of things that we should pay attention to, such as process versus products, I think, being instead of doing. Could you repeat the rest of them? I think I said something about the space around form, um, the silence around sound. And then it was process rather than substance. substance. Attention to attention itself rather than always its content. I think our education fills us with content, um, but rarely spends time on attention itself. Um, I said in, in the workshop yesterday that there was a wonderful exhibition in London a couple of summers ago that was called Invisible art of the unseen. It was full of emptiness, you know. It was, it was wonderful. It was after I'd finished my book, but I think I'd put in a little bit about it. Um, and in it, the uh, curator had written a, a, a paper about it in which he said, wonderfully, he said, this show is a challenge to the complacency of the seen. I thought this was such a wonderful phrase. I think emptiness is a challenge to the complacency of the seen, of the heard, you know, of, 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 of the obvious. And I think we all fall, and our culture helps us to fall into that complacency. If you look at a Chinese painting, the space is as often as important as the marks. You look at a haiku, one twiddly little you know, three lines around space, and it has the space, the experience space, as well as just that on the page. So I, I think it's the, the non-obvious. Thank you. Thank you. I have a, <coughs> can we hear me? Is this coming through? Is this on? Is this on? That's right. You have to okay. hold it very close. Uh, I think you kind of approached this toward the end of your talk, um, but I think often about the potential of emptiness. And that's how I I kind of feel that it's a potential, which is kind of like potency. It's a powerful idea. You can, it's it's there ready to suck in whatever whatever you need. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I really hope you know, my my book is 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 to try is a challenge to the idea of emptiness as lack and and to see emptiness as fullness. Um, it was interesting when I began and 
I asked some of my friends, hey, what does emptiness mean to you? And one of my friends said, you know, something to be filled, which I think is often a fairly normal response. And then I asked two friends who were artists, one a sculptor, one a painter, and they both came. Oh, it's space to create and space to think in, you know. And as I say, it's often artists who see, pick up things and articulate them before us. I mean, I was delighted, but... Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. Thank you. So thank you. So this is a, <clears throat> a big question, and just answer it in whatever way you like. But So how do you apply these concepts to psychotherapy? I'm sure there's, it's a huge Ooh. realm, but uh, pick out a few things if you don't mind. Uh, it's a huge one. I fear that in psychotherapy what you usually meet is the emptiness of lack. Now, interestingly, the lady's question that I talked about earlier in the workshop yesterday, she was a psychotherapist and said how she was meeting the lack as loss, as something necessary. And she came up with that wonderful thing about the link between the two being connection or lack of connection. How do you work with it in psychotherapy? I think you work with through attention. And I think, I'm not sure this is a very good answer, but you know, you are trying to help, as a therapist, you're trying to help the client become, expand their awareness and see the patterns and see the patterns of reaction and try to open up a little space to see that they need not always follow the same pattern, that there is a little... You're always working on that little chink of opening up more choice so you have a response rather than a reaction, so you're working in awareness. I think you have the emptiness, or maybe it's something that the therapist, I would like to think, holds within them that feeling of potential, that emptiness of necessity, that feeling of connection, and they may hold that in that space, which is a a safe space for the client, the patient, to come and bring all the stuff they can't bring somewhere else. So there's an emptiness there that is welcoming, I think that's probably the very heart of therapeutic work. Um, And I think sometimes it is the job of the therapist, or maybe always, to hold that potential, to hold the feeling for the client that you are not just that. For someone who is stuck in the misery and in the lack, I know you are more than that. Maybe you can't see it at this moment, so okay, it's my job to hold it for you. And our work together is for me to hand that back to you. That's really, I think, all I can say. Thank you. So, um, so you just answered this guy's question. Um, you, you, you talked to two different people and asked them to describe emptiness, and one of them said it's something to be filled, and the other one said it's something to create things in. That sounded like the same answer to me twice, and you, you presented it as if they were profoundly different. Really good. 
that's a really good thing. And, you know, yeah, you got me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, mm, you're right. Judgment. It's interesting. I was thinking, you know, thoughts coming in as I was sitting, you know. Yeah, judgment, you know, Las Vegas or the desert, should I say that? It's exposing my judgment of Las Vegas, you know. Um, And I think that's the same judgment I brought to that one. Because I think we live in a culture that, that encourages us to fill all emptiness with consumer, with consumption. And silence, you know, oh my God, I must have the radio on. I'm frightened of silence. It's often evasion. So I think evasion is the answer. And you're right, their answer wasn't. And I was judging my friend in a way that was not nice, so thank you. But I I did see it as, as, as a, yeah, it shows my thing, you know, creation is good, other consumption is bad. Okay. I'll work on that one, but thank you. For that. that was not the answer. This will be our... <laughs> oh, what did you expect? So, oh, you can tell me afterwards. Sorry, maybe. It's not a question. I'm just um, remembering that um, there was a quote from a Native American who said, the white man is afraid of silence. I just want to share that. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing to end on, and I think it's profoundly true. Thank you all very much. <laughs>